Today on the Zabecast, is Michael Bennett a low-rent, wheelchair-shoving, entitled athlete scumbag, or does he really have a case this time that the man and the system is trying to hold a brother down? We report, you decide. Jordy Nelson feels the cold blade in Green Bay. Does the NFL finally have an antidote to their catch conundrum? And the full review of the legendary Shadow Creek. You got half an hour to kill, then buckle up and let's go! Tuesday, March 27. Thank you for downloading and thank you for listening. My voice is starting to come back almost complete. And give it another day and I think I should be there. It is just me today on the Zabecast. I hope that is okay. I think you and I will be okay together. Uh, Drew Olson needed an extra day this week. Bob and Brian are off. So first two days I said, nah, you know what? I got plenty to talk about. I'll handle it myself. And besides, if I can't do this half hour on my own, then what good am I? What good am I as a radio talent, right? If I can't hold down 30 minutes or thereabouts on my own. Let's start with the Michael Bennett story. The formal charge that Michael Bennett is facing is called injury to the elderly, which is a felony that carries up to 10 years in prison. He was booked yesterday and sentenced and released on $10,000 bond. And the first thing I noticed when Michael Bennett was in court yesterday in Houston was the good boy sweater. It never ceases to crack me up. What is the good boy sweater? It's a term I came up with when I realized in sports a long time ago. And, And also, I guess, in other walks of life, if any person is being accused or arrested or charged with something and they have to appear in court, always wear a sweater. Sweaters are are image softeners. You know who wore a sweater most famously back in the day? Mr. Rogers. That's right. And so whenever guys would show up with like a reputation, like when the Redskins signed Albert Hainsworth, Albert Hainsworth came to the Redskins with a reputation as not only a hell of a defensive tackle, but also a guy who had stomped on Andre Garrod's head, a guy who had gotten into road rage incidents in Tennessee. So what did he wear to his introductory press conference with the Redskins? You can go look up the photos. A good boy sweater. And it's like, oh, it's his cuddly old Albert Hainsworth. Bag of shit. Uh, When Alex Rodriguez went on 60 Minutes to deny and to lie about his use of PEDs and steroids and everything else, what did he wear? Go ahead, you can look it up and watch the tape. A good boy sweater. It happens time and time and time again. I haven't seen Michael Bennett in a sweater ever, in any photograph, in any situation, at any time. Yet there he was in court yesterday with his good boy sweater on because I can't be the guy that did this. And maybe he didn't. This is going to be an interesting one. The incident happened when Bennett shoved his way onto the field, according to the district attorney, the Harris County DA, shoved his way onto the field after his brother Martellus had just won the Super Bowl with the Patriots at NRG Stadium two Super Bowls ago. In the process, the Houston PD says that one of their officers witnessed Bennett push three stadium employees, including a woman, in a wheelchair. The extent of the woman's injuries are unknown, according to sources and reports, but cops say her wheelchair did not flip over due to its weight and she still works at the stadium. 
One report I read from a different source said that the woman, according to the Houston PD, has a strained back. Or she had a strained back. No video of the incident either. Now this is some pretty weak coffee at this point. You're talking about a strained back as the only injury from this incident. You're talking about no video. You're talking about the wheelchair didn't even flip over. And it's dicey. Of course, Michael Bennett is taking no chances. He has hired the, he has hired the best, the most premier criminal defense attorney in America, not just in Houston, but in America, arguably in Rusty Harden. And again, I feel obligated to say I met Rusty Harden once. Uh, it was Super Bowl 2005. We were down there, and uh, we had just had dinner at this place, and then. Uh, over comes Rusty Harden, who was there having dinner at the same restaurant with someone else and uh, was introduced to our table. And, hey, how's it going? How's it going? Rusty Harden has re- represented so many athletes over the years, including famously Roger Clemens, uh, when he took on uh, everybody regarding his own steroid usage. And he won. He took on the feds and won. That's how good Rusty Harden is. So Bennett's hired Rusty Harden. Harden has said, point blank, quote, he flat out didn't do it. It wasn't a case of he didn't shove her that hard or anything like that. He never touched her. That's the position that Rusty Harden is taking right out of the gate. Now, of course, Harden only has to create reasonable doubt that the incident was an accident uh, and that it was not a malicious case of intentional injury to the elderly. But this is interesting. He's saying he didn't touch her. If there is any video that does crop up, and I doubt it two years later, that shows something different, well, then Bennett is going to be in a very bad spot. Also, Harden said, quote, there were bunches of families going through the door that Bennett wanted to go through, bunches of families trying to get through that door to get on the field. Uh, They all tried different places. Everybody sort of streamed through there. I'm not sure this woman even knew who might have shoved her. Harden, though, was most taken aback by the vitriolic tone of the Houston PD chief Art Acevedo's press conference last Friday, a presser in which he called Bennett, quote, morally corrupt, unquote, and pathetic. Said Harden, I've never seen that before. We don't talk about capital murder defendants like that. Here's what's interesting. This could well be the mirror opposite of the Michael Bennett Las Vegas arrest case, a case in which you'll recall one party made outrageous, inflated claims, inflammatory claims that in the end, when it was all said and done, were not backed up by anything resembling concrete evidence. In fact, in the Vegas case, video exonerated the Las Vegas PD, as did the evidence, as did the racial makeup of police, two Hispanic officers, one African-American as did the timeline of events, as did the recorded exchanges with the police themselves in which Bennett uh, thanked the officers for handling him in a professional manner. Bennett, of course, still cried foul and threatened to sue, but guess what? You haven't heard a peep from Bennett or his lawyers since then because they don't have a case because Michael Bennett was full of shit in that Las Vegas police arrest. Of course, the NFL still didn't feel like they had to wait. They jumped in and issued a statement that decried 
this happening still in America. They didn't necessarily throw in entirely with Michael Bennett's version of events, but they gave a statement of quasi-support, which the NFL should have never done. But the NFL is always going to do that because they just feel like they need to be on that side of things to not get some people mad at the NFL for not supporting a charge of a racially motivated arrest. Whatever. It's possible this is the exact opposite. It's possible that the Houston PD is doing the same thing that Michael Bennett did, in which they exaggerate wildly about a particular incident because they are sick and tired of what they think are asshole athletes like Michael Bennett ignoring the rules and just shoving past people to say, screw you, I don't care, You know, we're going to go right past you. Just like Bennett was, I'm sure, convinced that he is sick of asshole cops who are maybe racially biased, arresting every black man who so much as jaywalks across the street. This could be the exact opposite. Stay tuned. Speaking of Vegas, let me get my divider there. New story. Vegas Golden Knights are in the playoffs. They are the sixth expansion team to reach the playoffs in their inaugural season in the four major sports since 1960. That's pretty impressive. 58 years, four major sports, lots of expansion teams along the way. They are only the sixth expansion team to make the playoffs. Even in a, in a league like the NHL where everybody makes the playoffs, almost. It's impressive. And George McPhee, our former GM here with the Capitals, is now the GM in Vegas. And I couldn't be uh, happier for him. He, is, he was always a good guy. Always a good guy. Good to interview. Straightforward. Quiet, soft-spoken, and a good GM for the most part. It just had run its course here in D.C. Happy for George McPhee out in Vegas. Now, the Golden Knights own that town right now. Hockey is, you know, there's a lot of snowbirds in Las Vegas to begin with. A lot of Northerners, a lot of Canadians that have relocated. Um, Canadians, I guess, who have visas to live in the United States or maybe citizenship, dual citizenship. And just a lot of Northern type people from the East and the upper Midwest who now live in Vegas. And so they are selling out every single night. Tickets, according to everybody I asked, are some of the hardest tickets in town, harder than any show in town. Hockey in the desert. Now, this could change. This could uh, you know, cool off at some point, and it probably will cool off to some extent. Will it ever be like, yeah, here, you want two tickets to a Golden Knights game when, when they suck five years down the road or something like that? Possibly. My friend JT the Brick, you know him, Fox Sports Radio, JT the Brick. He lives in Vegas, has lived in Vegas, and does a show there uh, for the network. Uh, he's been there since, I want to say, eight years now. He said, uh, ah, you know, this year, th- th- this year everyone's behind him. Everyone loves him. Next year, well, we'll see about that. So he's a little bit less confident that the Golden Knights will continue to be the hottest thing in town. But good for them. I'd love to. How about this? Capitals, Knights, Stanley Cup Finals. Awesome. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. God, that would be so great. Extra trip out to Vegas in June for the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, hold on a second. The Vegas Knights are in the Western Conference, right? Okay, good. Just checking on that. Jordy Nelson says he is hurt by the Packers' indifference at making any attempt to keep him on the roster. This is, it's been said a million times, I'll say it again, the cold, cruel reality of the NFL. The instant that you cost one penny more 
than what the green eye shade capologists in a team's personnel department think you are worth? Goodbye. See you later. You're cut. Gone. Said Jordy Nelson to Rob Domofsky of ESPN.com, I think the number of I think the number was part of it, meaning his cap number, but also the conversation I had in the meeting, said Jordy Nelson. I met with Brian Gutekunst and had a discussion because I had to get a feel not just for the pay cut, but what their plans were going forward. After that meeting, there wasn't, I don't think, much desire there. I think with the combination of both, we decided what was best for myself and what was best for my family, just like they decided what was best for them and the Packers. Quote, unquote, Jordy Nelson. Nelson seemingly acknowledged that he would have been open to some sort of adjustment to his contract to facilitate an agreement to remain in place with the Packers, but that when the team, quote, really, really lowballed him, according to former teammate James Jones, it made it clear, eh, not much desire across the table for the relationship to continue. Said Jordy, I think the hurt part was, to be honest, it was the unwillingness to try to make it work. But then again, it's a business, and they have to do what they think is best. Look, I know his cap number was high. I know that he doesn't have the separation ability he once had after that knee injury. But fuck, he was playing with a shitball quarterback almost all year long. And that shitball quarterback, Mr. Roll right and throw it out of bounds, missed a wide-open Jordy Nelson on many occasions. Well, he was wide open because he was going in between the zone. It's not this, ah, whatever. He was open a lot, and they didn't get him the ball. It's just part, another great life lesson that sometimes life, a lot of times life is patently unfair. If Aaron Rodgers is healthy and plays all year, Jordy Nelson's production is absolutely better by a factor of 30%, if not more. And if they get close to winning the Super Bowl, there's a probable feeling of, well, we know Jordy Nelson is not quite what he once was. We know he's expensive, but guess what? We're going we're gonna to trim his salary a bit. We're going to defer some money, and we're going to restructure. But fuck yeah, we're going to keep Jordy Nelson. Did you see what he did with Aaron Rodgers last year? Didn't happen. Rodgers got hurt. They decide Jordy Nelson's too expensive. Next thing you know, he's a Raider. It is a business, and sometimes it's a dumb business because the Packers may end up regretting that big time. So the NFL meetings are going on. The annual NFL coaches photo took place at wherever the owners are. Is it Palm Springs? Is it uh, Palm Beach Gardens, Florida? I'll have to look that up. All I know is this. Every year, they force every one of the 32 NFL coaches who are at this yearly league meetings in the offseason to get out and take a photograph. And every year in this coach's photograph, Andy Reid wears a Hawaiian shirt. (laughs) It's just the best. Not only is Andy Reid wearing a Hawaiian shirt, but he's also wearing shorts. He's the only coach in the photo wearing shorts. Also, there was one, I should say there was not 32 NFL coaches there. There was 31 NFL coaches there. One guy did not show up. Can you guess which guy? How'd you know it was Belichick? You answered that so quickly. Man, you just knew that Bill Belichick was going to be an asshole that didn't go along with the program. Yeah. So there's no Bill Belichick in that photo. Go figure. Speaking of Belichick and the Patriots, we still don't have any answers to the Malcolm Butler benching. And it looks like that this story may end up sinking to the bottom of the North Atlantic like the Titanic. Mike Reese of ESPN.com has this interview snippet with Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots. 
When asked about if he had received a satisfactory explanation on the decision to not play Malcolm Butler, Kraft said the following, quote, with my fan hat on, you can come up with all kinds of reasons or things, but here's the deal. We in New England are privileged to have, I believe, the greatest coach in the history of coaching. I would second that. We are in, he's the modern Lombardi, Bill Belichick. We are involved, says Kraft, in a number of businesses in our family. We're in 95 countries in the world, and we try to encourage to have good managers, and we want them to be bold. We want them to take risks. Sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. I have faith in Bill as a coach, and I don't think there is anyone who has the football knowledge and expertise combined with understanding personnel. No one can merge those two worlds like him. He's done pretty well for us over the last 18 years. So as a fan, I can question some of the moves. As someone who is privileged to be owner of this team, I encourage him to keep going with his instincts and do what he thinks is right. There is no doubt in my mind, even if he made an error, and this is true with any of our managers, that if they're doing it for the right reason, then I support it 100%. I've never had, any, never had one instance in the 18 years where Bill hasn't done what he believes is in the best interest of our team to help us win games. That's a nice, long-winded statement from Bob Kraft in which he shows full support for his middle managers like Bill Belichick, essentially a middle manager, maybe a senior president, vice president, something like that of one of his companies. But he doesn't actually say, well, what was the reason? Because this still, to me, is going to go down as one of the great fuck-ups in Bill Belichick's career. I think there's no way you can spin it otherwise. I don't want to hear about, well, you know, Butler missed practice with an illness, but they weren't sure if Butler was all in on the game plan. They might have thought Butler was already eyeing his exit as a free agent. Eh, tell that to the fucking hand. This guy was healthy and ready to go. He played 97% of your snaps during the regular season, and you were getting lit up on defense by Nick Foles. And you decide, nah, nah, we're just, we're just not going to play him. We're going to let Batamosi go out there and run around like one of those electric football players uh, with the base adjusted wrong, doing circles and shit. I mean, this was a fuck-up. Now, maybe Kraft got the answer he wanted in private about why Butler didn't play, and maybe he's sitting on that. I'm sure he'll probably never reveal it. Who knows? Uh, but that's, uh, that's all Kraft is going to say. I respect the fact that the Patriots can have a major story like this and let it just sink to the bottom of the ocean to never be recovered again. Although the Titanic was found, actually. So maybe at some point the real story of what happened will come out. I still think, I still think, that uh, it's a possibility that Butler is the daddy of Kraft's beautiful new girlfriend, baby mama, not quite grandson, not quite kid, but, you know, Kraft's girlfriend just had a child. And I don't think we've seen a picture of the child. I'd like to see the skin tone on that. Can you imagine a Springer-like episode where the night before the Super Bowl, they find out that, wait a minute, they, they find Butler, they catch Butler with Kraft's girlfriend. And then they find out, not only that, but, yeah, that child that you're so excited about coming, uh, Bob, Bob Kraft, yeah, that's, uh, that's Malcolm's. That's Until I get a better theory, that's what I'm going for. The new catch rule in the NFL. Who's excited, everybody? Ooh, it's going to be great. And maybe a new PI rule. That's going to be voted on by the owners here today, I think, uh, at the owners' meetings. As for the catch rule, they think it's going to clarify things. They think it's going to simplify things. They think that it's going to finally put to rest one of the most vexing rules 
uh, or most vexing things about the modern NFL. Nobody knows what it catches. According to the competition committee that has now put together the new catch rule, which is going to only have three elements that you have to complete, which is possession, feet or body part down, and football move. That's the third one. I thought we once had football move or a move common to the game in there. Then at some point, you know, surviving the ground became another part of a catch, and that's apparently going to be out. According to Peter King in the MMQB column this week, Alberto Riveron, the new director of officiating, the eye in the sky, old Al Rivi, explained some of the catches that will be would have been ruled a catch under this new interpretation of what's a catch. Most notably, the Jesse James catch in the Steelers-Patriots game in week number 15, I want to say, 15, 16, that, oh, I don't know, no big deal, just shifted home field advantage in the playoffs. May have affected who ended up in the Super Bowl that year, but eh, whatever, no big deal. Here's what uh, Riveron said. The video starts. James catches the ball outside the one-yard line. Control, Riveron said. Left knee on the ground, two feet from the goal line. A knee equals two feet, Riveron said. Football move. James reaches across the goal line and breaks the plane, and the ball moves perceptibly as both hands and arms hit the ground beyond the goal line. Now he reaches, Riveron said. Football move. It's over. Catch. Touchdown. He made the football move. He broke the plane of the goal line. Play over. Similar to the Des Bryant catch that was ruled not a catch in Green Bay two postseasons prior, that too would be now considered a catch because Des caught it, control, one foot down, two foot down, stumbling, leaning, reaching. Then he goes to the ground and then the ball comes out. Peter King then asked a good question. Every now and then Peter King will uh, stumble upon a good question. King says, one question, Al, can, I, can you define football move? Said Riveron, yes, we've got this in our proposal. Football moves include, ready, players reaching out with possession, players pulling ball back in, players making a third step, player protecting himself. All those qualify as a football move. Yeah, but what about the moves that we don't know that are going to happen, that don't fit into that short list of, well, that's a move, that's a move, that's a move. What about moves like Mick Jagger? Huh? Anyone? Bueller? There's also going to be a decision on the P.I. rule. The Jets want 15 yards as the default pass interference with the possibility, according to the Jets' proposal, to have a spot foul for what they consider, quote, egregious acts or fouls meant to negate what would otherwise be an easy catch. So in other words, it's 15 yards for P.I., normal P.I., and then if you a guy is totally beat and the ball is going to come down gently into a receiver's arms and the defender tackles him blatantly a full two seconds before the ball comes, that's a spot foul. Okay, in theory, on paper, in the laboratory, that seems reasonable. But you know, once we get into the season and we see all kinds of different PIs, you're going to go, oh, he definitely tackled him. Oh, he grabbed his arm there. Come on, that's a spot foul. It'll be just one more thing to argue about. According to reports, the owners are probably not going to go with either the 15-yard PI or the 15-yard PI with the egregious foul provision, and they're going to leave pass interference alone, which, by the way, I'd be fine with, um, but I would like to really kind of limit the amount of P.I. calls there are in the game because it's such a huge penalty. 
You know, it's a 40-yard penalty sometimes, changes entire games, and they're very subjective. They're very hard to call because referees with their eyes are running downfield, their eyeballs jiggling around in their head. You know how you know how hard it is to focus when you're running at full speed. And they can't see certain things, a jersey grab, an arm tug, a wrist hold, or a clamp. As much as I hate replay, and I want to get rid of it, I've always said if we're going to have replay, then you got to be able to use it on PI because it's ideal for PI. You slow down in vivid detail exactly who interfered with whom on a quick bang-bang play on a 40-yard decision because it's such a huge penalty. You should save the best technology for the most subjective of calls for the biggest plays which could turn games one way or the other, and that's definitely pass interference. If that sounds contradictory to you, coming from me, Mr. Anti-Replight, well then, I can't help you, but that's just how I feel. Happy birthday to Howard Cosell. He would have been 100 years old yesterday. Of course, he died in 1995 at the age of 77 of a heart attack. Still, though, Howard 100. I know there's the XM channel, Howard 100, but think of Howard Cosell 100. Think of Howard Cosell still alive today and coherent at 100. And think of Howard Cosell today with a Twitter account at 100. Think of Howard Cosell today if he was a spry 100 commentating on things like the Conor McGregor-Floyd Mayweather fight. God, that would be awesome. Think of Howard Cosell talking about Roger Goodell and taking him on. Man, Howard Cosell, at this point, if he was still alive and had a Twitter account, he would be starting feuds left and right. Terry Bradshaw is a a nice kid, but he's a real dope. Awfulannouncing.com had a good post today in which they pulled out a bunch of YouTube clips of Howard Cosell's famous halftime highlights on Monday Night Football, dating all the way back to like 1969, 1970. The ones I remember as a kid, obviously, were in the 70s. And anyone of my age remembers Howard Cosell doing the halftime highlights on Monday Night Football because they were our only window into the rest of the league. Yes, it's crazy to think, where else would you get highlights of the rest of the NFL? You might get a couple highlights on Sunday morning at 12.30 p.m. in the East during the NFL Today or during the NBC pregame show to start you know, the games that, set that Sunday. Other than that, and you might get some other team highlights on your local news, on your five-minute sports segment with Brick Tamlin, your local, well, not Brick Tamlin, it would be uh, Champ Kind, your local TV sports guy back in the 70s, but that was it. It was hard to get highlights video highlights of other teams in the league back in 1975, 76, 77, 78, 80, 80. Well, then cable started to come around. Uh, ESPN started in 79. so. But in the mid-70s, that was it. And I remember, I don't have the bite with me. I'm sorry about this, but I did pull it from a documentary once. Howard Cosell, he voiced the halftime highlights. He did not edit the halftime highlights. He did not choose the halftime highlights. But because every team's, every, every team's fan base so wanted their team and their game to be on that package of highlights, and the highlight packages were meaty. I'm mean, looking at the, the post from Awful Announcing. They were eight-minute-long highlight packages, which is unheard of in today's modern television world. But every fan base wanted their team on there. 
You, know, you have a big win. You like kill the Cardinals or something, thirty-four to seven. You're like, why are we on there? What the, the, coward Cosell, what a dick. I hate him. He and of course Frank Gifford admitted in this documentary, and I've got the sound, but I just don't have it handy. Sorry. He said, yeah, they would tell fans anyone who would ask that Howard Cosell was the one who chose the highlights, just so fans would get more and more mad at Howard Cosell. And guess what? Howard Cosell did not give two shits. He loved in a certain way, being the villain, wearing the black hat, being the hated guy, which was kind of cool. All right, I forgot to give you guys my review on Shadow Creek Golf Club out in Vegas, which I know you're going to say, oh, golf. (laughs) Yes, golf. Damn you people, this is golf. (laughs) If you don't like it, then you can just end the podcast now, and I'll see you tomorrow. If you do want to hear my review on Shadow Creek, I'll give it to you right now. It is the mysterious, reclusive, ultra-posh, ultra-expensive course in Las Vegas that, yes, you can actually buy your way onto. Unlike private clubs that host U.S. Opens in the Northeast, Shinnecock and Marion, and, um, you know, well, Bethpage is public, uh, Oakmont, Oak Hill, you name it, you can't, you, you can't get on those clubs. You can't just say, well, I'll pay you $1,000. I want to come play next Tuesday. You can buy your way on to Shadow Creek in Vegas. In fact, it once cost $1,000 to play Shadow Creek, which is fucking insane. Now it only costs $500, which I know you're going to say, that too is fucking insane. I agree. I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree. It's insane. But it was awesome, and it was worth every penny. Oh, and it includes a limo. Oh, and it includes all-you-can-eat candy and chips on the golf course. Oh, uh, if you want to buy a hat in the pro shop, which I thought about briefly because I do have a hat addiction being a bald American, uh, $45 for a golf course baseball-style cap. I said, <laughs> 45 the fuck out of here. I'll pay 25 for a hat, which I know is double the actual cost to make them, but fine, 40, 45 no. Even I have my limits. Shadow Creek is only open Monday through Thursday. And it's not guaranteed to be open even when you might want to go play. They might have a VIP in town. They might have some maintenance going on. They might have some group that has bought out the entire course. Who knows? They have a very limited number of tee times as well. They don't jam the tee sheet full. They used to be, according to Wikipedia, they used to have only one tee time per hour to ensure that Every group didn't have to dare look at another court, another you know, another group waiting to you know hole out in front of them, or another group bearing down on their ass, you know, tapping their watches, going hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. That's not the case now. I think they go fifteen minute tee times, which is larger than most golf courses. Most golf courses are either I think nine or twelve minute tee times because they're jamming everyone in there. Steve Wynn built Shadow Creek in nineteen eighty nine for about forty five to $60 million. Estimates vary. It was a ton of money. For reference point, most basic muni golf courses cost $5 million or less to purchase or to to build from scratch. Now, if you're smart, well, if you're smart, you would never buy a golf course. You would never get in the golf business because it's extremely hard to make any money. But let's say you wanted to for some sadistic reason. You would be smart to buy an existing golf course and then renovate it if you wanted to you know, make it a little bit better. But to build a golf course these days, uh, my golf friends say it's about $5 million or less, depending. 
That's for a basic public course. You want a high-end public that's got some design snaz to it and maybe some elements, uh, some complicated elements of routing and or uh, water features and earth moving, whatever, then you're talking about $10 million. Private clubs that are very swank can cost up to $20 million. And then, like I said, Steve Wynn built Shadow Creek for 45 if not $60 million. He took a square piece of flat desert, hired Tom Fazio, one of the best architects in the business, and said, you've got a blank check. Build me something that will make people go, wow. And just let me know what's done. Well, Fazio went to work. And by the time he was done, he came back and said, Mr. Wynn, your golf course is ready. And oh, by the way, I need another check. (laughs) You gave me a blank check. I need a second blank check because it was that expensive. I'm just kidding about that. He did uh, earn his fee, and it did cost almost $60 million. We're talking thousands of mature pine trees, like 21,000 trees and shrubs of all varieties, mostly evergreens, junipers, some deciduous trees, all over the place. We're talking about tons and tons of earth moving. I was blown away at how much elevation change there was. They started by taking bulldozers and just digging out the big square that is the golf course and pushing the desert dirt and rock and sand to the perimeter of the property to create a huge berm so that you really couldn't see anything in if you were driving around outside the golf course, which it's about 15 minutes northwest of downtown Las Vegas. And when it was built, there was nothing around. Now there's actually a bunch of neighborhoods around there, even though anyone who lives in that neighborhood, they're not going to be able to play Shadow Creek unless they pay the 500 bucks. And they would have to go downtown to one of the MGM properties because you have to stay at an MGM Grand property. MGM bought uh, Shadow Creek off of Steve Wynn and Steve Wynn's you know, casino uh, portfolio uh, back in, oh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years, whatever. Somewhere like 10 years after the course opened, Wynn sold Shadow Creek to MGM International. And they now say, okay, you want to play it? You just got to stay at one of our resorts. 500 bucks, we'll pick you up in a limo. And we'll take you there. In fact, you can't even take a cab or an Uber there. You have to take one of their limos to Shadow Creek. Anyway, Fazio built a phenomenal course. I mean, like I said, just playing it, I'm walking around saying, this is unbelievable. It makes me feel like I'm in North Carolina with these pine trees and these elevation changes. We're talking, there was a hundred foot deep ravine uh, underneath the, uh, you know, the fifth green, a par three, beautiful par three, in which it was so deep, I'm like, man, they must have been running bulldozers down there 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to dig that out. And there was ravines and hilltops and bluffs all over the place just like that. Incredible. There's heating under four of the greens as well. They had a renovation of the golf course, I believe, 10 years ago because, well, you know, it's never done. It's like a woman with her plastic surgery. Golf courses, elite golf courses, they always have to have renovations, design tweaks, you name it. Uh, They did so about 10 years ago, redid some things, put in some extra stuff. There's heating under four of the greens. Heating to make sure that the poor little greens don't get too cold in the darkest, coldest nights in the middle of winter in the desert. Now, the knock on Fazio as a golf course designer is that he's like the Tom Hanks of golf course designers. He rarely, if ever, makes a bad course, just like Hanks rarely, if ever, makes a bad movie, but that all of his characters and all of his courses feel the same, like every Tom Hanks character kind of blends into one another. 
And same thing for Fazio courses. Eh, I don't know. I like Tom Hanks as an actor, and I like Fazio as a designer. He designs beautiful, elegant, sensible golf courses. There are very few holes out there at Shadow Creek in which I go, eh, yeah, I don't know about this one. 17 is a spectacular downhill par 3 that plays into an amphitheater of, you know, artificial hilltops and bluffs and trees and whatnot. It sets beautifully over a lake. It only plays 150 yards. It's downhill by about 40 feet. But the green is tiny. The green is way too fucking small, I think. Now, am I bitter because I hit what I thought was a good 9-iron that flew over the green and into a back bunker, into a plugged lie in which I had no shot whatsoever, and then had to splash it out across the green into another bunker and then try to hit basically a two-foot sandblast to a pin that was cut no more than four paces off the right edge to take double bogey? Yes, yes, I am bitter, okay? Damn you people, this is golf! (laughs) One of our guys in the group almost had a damn hole in one because he clubbed it correctly. So there's only a few slightly unrealistic, slightly, eh, holes out there that I go, nah, not super, not, not so much a fan of that. Our conditions when we played were only about a six on a scale of one to ten. And they were still spectacular conditions. I'll make sure to post a couple photos. The course was just coming out of the winter, obviously, and so surrounding grasses, not the overseeded part of the course, but the surrounding grasses were still somewhat dormant, a little bit yellow in spots, and so it didn't look like it does in its most glorious springtime or fall glory. The greens had a very light dusting of sand or maybe fertilizer on it. didn't affect the putting of them at all. They putted very lively, but not terrifyingly fast. Our host said that, yes, in about a month, they would be about 13 on a stimp, and they would scare the living shit out of you. We played about 6,700 yards of golf course, which I felt, it just felt like it was shorter because there's a bunch of hero tees that have been built way behind where we were teeing off from. And so every hole, we're like, we're like five, you know, we, we don't suck as players. We're like, you know, there's you know, three or four guys who are a scratch, another three or four guys who are six, seven, eight, nine handicaps, and we're like, why are we playing from all the way up here? Well, it's because that back, 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 back tee over there, that makes the hole 494 yards as a par four. Course record is 66 from the new back tees, uh, held, shared by Dustin Johnson and some college kid whose name I've since forgotten. They do have college tournaments there every now and then. They do have pros play there every now and then. And it's just phenomenal. We had a caddy by the name of Pink. He was from Jamaica. That was on the back of his caddy jumper. Pink, great guy, great caddy. Pink said the largest bet he ever watched go down in the course out there was for $500,000. On the front nine. Good God! And normally I'd say bullshit on that. But you know what? It's Vegas. And people come to Vegas who have stupid, stupid money. The course likes to say stay low profile. They don't really advertise. There's no twilight rate, obviously. But the good thing is, despite all this, they're not snooty. We played music from our golf cart boom boxes, took, lot, took lots of photos, smoked, drank, you name it, used our cell phones when we felt like we needed to, and there was never any, hey, shh, 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 don't do that. This is Shadow Creek. We don't allow that. My only small knock on the course was that because they allowed the golf carts to drive pretty much anywhere, and you like that when you're playing because you don't want to have to walk from the cart path to your ball. It meant there was a lot of areas that had a lot of tire tracks, a lot of matted down grass, which from a visual standpoint made it not quite so appealing. 
I'd love to play the course, which is walkable, uh, although it would be a pretty strong walk. I'd love to play the course when they had limited carts so that it was walking only, and it would be in the most pristine of pristine of conditions because it would be spectacular. But unbelievable. I mean, it just the combination of the Georgia-like pines, massive, huge, fully grown, 30, 40, 50, 60 feet tall, the desert weather, the mountain backdrops as well. When you swir- And then the lakes and the streams, you mix it all together. Mm-mm-mm. Yes, 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 yes. Shadow Creek is a must-play, period, if you love golf. Save your money. Put 10 bucks in a kitty once a week. Uh, at the end of the year, you'll have enough money to play Shadow Creek. And play it, because guess what? You never know when it'll be gone. Or you never know when the deal will be changed. Some Chinese billionaire could buy it and close it forever. And then you're done. In fact, I played the Wynn Golf Course, which is, by the way, now closed because Steve Wynn is going to build a water park. I, I say water park. It's not like your typical plastic tube water park with rednecks in it. It's going to be a Vegas-style water park with a lagoon and beaches and beautiful areas and a place to have firework shows and whatnot. But they're going to build that on where the Wynn Golf Course is, which was another $500 Tom Fazio design right next to the Strip. It was like a pocket Shadow Creek, but on a very tight footprint. And with a massive casino tower right next to you, which was actually really cool because you felt like you're in a city almost, and you're there playing this incredible golf course. Totally unique. I'm glad I played it. It's now closed and is going to be bulldozed under. So there's my review of Shadow Creek. One last ad real quick. Actually, two last quick stories as we finish up here. YouTube will sponsor... The NBA Finals. Yes, YouTube TV was the presenting sponsor of the World Series last fall. They will now be the first ever presenting sponsor of the NBA Finals. Yes, we have major corporations sponsoring this event. You are forces you can't understand. We have major corporations sponsoring this event. And maybe not major corporations, but they at least have major websites. You've heard of YouTube, right? It's not just for silly cat videos anymore. I don't pay for YouTube TV, although maybe at some point I will. I know this. I watch a lot of YouTube these days. I just noodle around. I will watch people's uploaded clips of The Sopranos, uploaded clips of Breaking Bad, uploaded clips of other favorite shows that I've already watched. I'll just hop around and catch those. A lot of good original content being produced out there from all kinds of people. I know kids love the YouTube now. My daughter, God, she'll never get off fucking YouTube. It's the bane of my existence. All right, we will end with this. A man named Mad Mike, Mad Mike Hughes is his name, has successfully launched himself into a self-made rocket 1,875 feet above the desert to try to prove his theory that the world is flat. According to the story I saw, he was slightly injured on a rough landing after the parachute in his homemade rocket deployed and plummeted back to Earth. They didn't say how serious the injuries were, but he is going to live. Yes, he believe he is a flat earther that is convinced the Earth is shaped like a Frisbee, not like a beach ball. And the only way to prove it was to build his own rocket and launch himself into the air. Guess the guy never heard 
of DJI and the Phantom series of drones, which also go easily 1,800 feet into the air or higher to test your flat earth theory. God bless that guy, Mad Mike Hughes. Who knows what's next for him? All right, thank you for listening, everybody. You know the drill. Tell two friends and just yell, Zabecast, out the window as you're driving down the road. Leave a positive review. Download and subscribe at all the major podcast outlets, iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. And as my friend Craig used to like to say, scared money don't make money. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.